All of a sudden, I feel warmer. Well, it's a great day to worship together. Pastor Cody and Melissa are away this weekend celebrating their anniversary. I think it's uh, 25th. So uh, let's join together and text them together. No, don't do that. Do not text them. Do not text them. So thankful they're able to get away and rest uh, on this weekend. I'm thankful to preach from God's Word. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It's on page 857 in the Pew Bible. As you turn there, have you seen those videos? They were going around for a while, I think on TikTok and YouTube, where a mom or dad places candy or fruit snacks in front of the child, uh, in front of the young toddler, and says something to the effect of, listen to me. You can have this candy, but you can't have it right now. I'm going to leave the room. I'm going to go get something, but I'll be right back, and then you can have the candy. They're really funny videos. And so the parent leaves the room, and you can guess what happens. The child or maybe the, the toddlers look at one another. The temptation is too great, and the child caves into their desires, and they devour the fruit snacks or the candy that's right in front of them. Well, these videos provide a bit of entertainment, but they also reveal the temptation that's taking place. You can just see their little wheels turning as they contemplate the command of their parent versus the reward, the M&Ms, that's right in front of them. Well, temptation can make you forget commands. It can make you forget your identity and maybe your desires change and you make decisions based on temporary pleasures rather than godly pursuits. Well, the opening of Matthew 4 is a very familiar passage. As I started pre preparing to preach this passage, I was like, oh, this is awesome. This is great. I'm so looking forward to this. The closer I got to Sunday, I thought, man, I'm so ill-prepared. I wish I had an extra week. But Matthew 4 is an important and familiar passage, but it doesn't mean that we need to overlook it, and we're definitely not ready to move on from it. We're never ready to move on from the words of God. But before we dissect Matthew 4, let's look back. It's very interesting as we look at the end of Matthew 3. What's happening at the end of Matthew 3? Jesus is being baptized. The temptation comes right after the baptism of Jesus, right at the end of Matthew 3, in verses 16 and 17, we see Jesus is baptized. He comes up from the water, and we hear this voice from heaven declaring, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we celebrate that the Son of God is baptized. And this isn't just a normal baptism. This is a testimony testifying of who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah who has come. And this resonates with the other messages from Matthew 1 and 2, that the Messiah has come, that John the Baptist uh, said that this is the one who would take away the sins of the world. And so the testimony of who Jesus is is seen time and time again through his baptism and now through the temptations that we're about to read about. But as we understand the temptations of Jesus, it's vital that we understand that Jesus' hair is still wet when he steps out into the desert. So let's read Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11, on page 857. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 
Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels orders concerning you, and they will support you with their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus told him, It is also written, Do not test the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him and angels came and began to serve him. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for this word. Lord, help us to remember the power of your word to remind us that it teaches us to trust you and to follow you and to obey your commands and ultimately to worship you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, we hear voices that are contrary to your word. We hear the evil one speaking, maybe whispering in our ear. So Lord, help us to be quick to turn aside that voice and to turn to you. Lord, we pray that your word will go forth and that as just as we sang about that everyone will receive Christ as Lord, that we will walk by faith knowing that Christ is Lord, that we will walk triumphantly knowing that Christ is Lord. So Lord, we come to your word this morning ready to obey it. We come to your word this morning as sinners, but as forgiven sinners. And so, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing and, what, and uh, who you've shown us to be through your word. We thank you for these temptations that teach us to trust Christ. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, just 11 verses this morning, but 11 powerful verses. And my goal in preaching this passage today is to strengthen your faith as you trust God, even in the most intense temptations. We all could talk about various temptations that we've gone through. And here in these three temptations, we see, spoiler alert, Jesus succeeds. He's victorious, but there is a battle along the way. So let's look at verse 1. Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There's so much in this opening verse First, Jesus is led into the wilderness by who? Who is leading him into the wilderness? The Spirit. I heard, I heard it. That's correct. The Spirit is leading Jesus. So the Father is aware of this event. This isn't something that's taking the Father by surprise. Now he's got to go with plan B or C. No, he's aware of this event. So members of the Trinity don't go rogue. We see that the Spirit is leading the Son. But you may say, well, that doesn't help things in my mind. You could ask the question, well, is God leading Jesus into temptation? Didn't Jesus teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? Are the devil and God the Father working together against Jesus? Well, of course not, but those are valid questions. Here in the desert, we see precisely what the book of James teaches us about temptation. We are not, and Jesus is not tempted by God. James 1.13 tells us this. 
But to be tempted is to be enticed toward evil. So we know that God is light and there's no darkness in Him at all. So what's the difference between testing and tempting? The goal of tempting is always evil. The goal of testing is that you may be complete and not lacking. So that's the difference. So the Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness. That's the next thing that we read. Or it could be translated as the wild places. The Spirit is leading Jesus into the wild places. As I think about the wild places, as I think about Jesus' role here, he's away from his family. He's away from his followers. He's away from that voice, this is my beloved son. He's away from all that's familiar. And sometimes this is where temptation is the strongest when we are away from those that we trust and are familiar with. So the last part of verse 1 is that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by who? Satan, the devil. The devil is real. You can call him Satan, the accuser, the evil one, or doofus, whatever you want to call him. We know that the devil is a liar, a deceiver, and a sinner. 1 John tells us that the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So if he's come to destroy the works of the devil, the works of the devil are multiple, many different devices and fiery arrows that he fires at us. And we'll see as he fires them towards the Son of God. We also read in verse 2, Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. I can't even imagine that. One time I fasted 40 hours. I don't even think it was 40 hours. It was a part of a youth event. I think I had a milkshake somewhere in there. But at the end of 40 hours, I was ready to eat McDonald's. And so Jesus here has fasted 40 days and 40 nights. This is likely a reflection of Israel's 40-year wandering. Both Israel and Jesus spent time in the wilderness prior to their appointed task. So what is the result of Jesus' fast here? He's hungry. He's naturally hungry. And this is the moment that the devil or the tempter decides to strike. The, de the deceiver has a plan. And what does he say? He says, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You can't tell me that you can't do that. And so, it sounds like the devil here is inviting Jesus to question his sonship or the fact that he's the Son of God. But that's not really what's going on here. He's not, the devil knows who Jesus is. Rather, he's wanting him to distort his role, distort his power as the Son of God. The devil believes Jesus has the power, he has the prerogative to satisfy his own needs, and so he's trying to get him to use his power, to use his role as the Son of God to satisfy not only his desires, but the devil's desires. You can hear the deception in the devil's offer. If you're the Son of God, come on, tell these stones to become bread. It's like he's saying, come on, you've got the power, let's eat. It would satisfy your hunger and my desire for power over you. How does Jesus answer the temptation given by the devil? With the word of God, with scripture. Jesus answers, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's so important to soak up the words of Jesus here. 
I read uh, on Twitter several years back that Jesus says, it is, and Satan says, is it? And so he questions what God says. But the word of God is so important. I was talking with a lady right before the service, and she said, Pastor Steve, I love this new Bible reading plan. I've never read a plan just like this, but I, did, I wasn't buying into it at first. But now as I'm reading Genesis 1 and Ezra 1 and Matthew 1 and Acts 1, I'm seeing similar theme, things in each part of those chapters. It's like the Word of God is just jumping off the page. And so I love her enthusiasm for the Word of God. The Word of God always points us to the promises of God. So Jesus here reminds us of the Word of God. He reminds the devil. He rebukes the devil's desire to break his fast. And he quotes from the Old Testament. I often think that I know the New Testament a little bit. And I don't know the Old Testament near as much as I should. And here he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. He knows his Old Testament well. He reminds the devil, every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord is for our good. Jesus is hungry, but he knows something that's better than satisfying his physical hunger. The satisfaction of the Word of God provides for our spiritual hunger far greater than bread and butter. While you and I can see the temptation Jesus faced, we quickly forget the temptation when we are able to provide quickly in our need. The first point this morning as we look at the first four verses is recognize the temptation of self-provision. Recognize that temptation that we're like, okay, I can provide for myself. If I can provide for myself, then I'm going to do it. The devil doesn't doubt the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He does, however, challenge the kind of son Jesus will be. Will this son be the kind of son that uses his power in a self-glorifying, self-satisfying fashion? Or will he continue on with the suffering and hunger he faces? In preparing for this sermon, I couldn't stay away from a book by Russell Moore called Tempted and Tried. It's absolutely phenomenal. And in, in the book, Dr. Moore analyzes this, these first few, few verses, and he, he shows us the temptation that's on display here. And Dr. Point, Dr. Moore points out that we'd rather be fed than fathered. That's so true, that if we can provide it, then we will take it. We'd rather be fed than fathered. But we must be on guard where our desires will take us. We don't want to be described as enemies of the cross as we read about in Philippians 3. There at the end of Philippians 3, it says their end, that is the enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things. When we're focused on earthly things, what are we not focused on? Who God is and the word of God. When we're focused on earthly things, our selfish desires motivate our decisions. Our desires change. Our actions change. Our behaviors change when our eyes are fixed elsewhere. Instead of seeing porn and gossip and greed as destructive, we label these sins as common and we tolerate them. Just because something is common doesn't mean that it isn't dangerous and deadly. 
The problem with self-provision is that you and I are focused on our attitude and what we can do. In short, it's a I got this kind of attitude. I can do this. I don't need God. But the antidote to self-provision is gratitude. When our hearts are filled with gratitude, we are content and we have peace and we can trust in the God who provides in our circumstances. As we see Jesus quote the Old Testament time and time again, he knows the power of God's word. It makes me think of John 6 here as we look at this first temptation. In John 6, Jesus teaches the crowds who to trust. In verse 30 of John 6, the crowds are questioning Jesus and asking, What sign are you going to do so that we may see and believe you? What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The crowds were curious as to what Jesus would do or what he would say. And Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then listen to what the crowd says in verse 34. 34. They say, Sir, give us this bread always. In other words, they want to feed their bellies all of the time. Can we get unlimited refills? One of my favorite restaurants, not around here, is the Spaghetti Factory. There's unlimited refills of bread. You just keep it coming. That's what the crowd wanted. They wanted that, that unlimited bread. But Jesus said, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. So Jesus is the bread of life. So avoid the temptation of self-provision by trusting in God's word. When we live on every word that comes from the mouth, we learn how to pray for our daily bread. And when we say, our Father in heaven, your name be honored. I'm trusting in you. So Jesus honors the Father as he passes this first temptation. Let's move on to the second one. Verses 5 through 7, we recognize the temptation of power and manipulation. And we remember the truth of God's word in James 1.15. Look at the second temptation. We see more of the devil's desires in verse 5. In verse 5, the devil takes him to the holy city, has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and says to him, again, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... In case you didn't know, he will give his angels orders concerning you and they will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The devil is crafty. His plans are calculated. And I don't think it's a, a coincidence that he takes him to familiar spots, to holy places, and even quotes from God's word. So be careful as you hear voices that twist the truth. The devil quotes from Psalm 91. Is this the first time Jesus has heard this? Of course not. But he's persuading, again, Jesus to use his power for his own benefit. The psalmist promises in Psalm 91 that angels would take charge over God's people and to keep them from harm. So it's like he's saying, do you know Psalm 91? 
Why don't we just apply Psalm 91 right here? But people have used and misused the Psalms on multiple occasions. Psalm 91 is a beautiful Psalm. It points to the reality of protection and freedom from harm in some situations, not all situations. So we have to balance 91 with other passages. And when we do, we recognize that the righteous, faithful believers do suffer. We will suffer. So the devil is dangerous and wild in his irresponsible interpretation of Scripture. I'm not so sure that he cares, though, of how good of a student he is as he interprets God's Word. Notice the subtle way the devil seeks to use God's Word. He thought, I'm going to be on the same playing field here. I'm going to, I'm going to quote Scripture. If you're saying it is written, you're going to quote Scripture, I'll quote Scripture. But... As he quotes scripture, he manipulates it for his own purposes. In verse 7, Jesus responds clearly and firmly to the devil. What does he say? It is also written, do not test the Lord your God. So what does he mean? The devil's not quoting the word of God to obey it. He's using it for his own profit. When Jesus says this, when he says, don't test the Lord your God, he knows what is going on. He's signaling to the devil, I know what you're up to. You've heard the phrase before, he's up to no good. That's definitely the devil here. Jesus says, don't test the Lord your God. As he does so, again, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, the people quarreled. They questioned God by demanding another sign. This took place right after, it's always interesting, right after the miracle, right after God provides bread from the skies in Deuteronomy 6. But that didn't matter. The people of God questioned God and they tested, tested Him. So Jesus says to the devil, don't test the Lord your God. In other words, don't go there. Jesus is greater than his enemy. He is the Son of God, and his Father is greater than the fool who stands before him. And Jesus knows what we should remember is that power is through the Spirit. Not by visible, visible might, not by the power that we strive for, but power through the Spirit. So what does this mean for us? As you hear, as I hear offers and temptations from the devil, don't settle for less. We want to be safe, so we pause when we hear offers of protection. We want to be religious, so when we hear voices that are masked in morality, we pause. We want an element of risk, so when we hear a voice that says, jump down, maybe this is the adventure that I've been waiting for, so we pause. But don't let the voices that elevate self-promotion Mask the voice that brings comfort from the cross. Jesus would say, many chapters after Matthew 4, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus doesn't avoid the suffering of the cross. He's committed to the Father's plan. So Jesus will hear voices similar to the devil's again. Listen to this voice from the Gospel of Mark. Jesus heard this voice Let the Christ, 
Let the king of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. What happened? Did he jump down from the cross? No. He stayed on the cross. He died on the cross. But he is not dead today. We know the end of the story, that he was raised from the dead, that he is raised in victory, that his resurrection leads to our victory, but we forget the power of the story. Jesus is the Son of God in power, but he wasn't looking to show that power here and now. The devil is defeated, but we must not overlook his manipulation and deceptive ways. As the devil quotes scripture, It's interesting what he leaves out, what he forgets, and how quickly we are tempted to forget God's Word. Jesus doesn't forget. He remembers and he reminds us of God's power through His Word. Perhaps you've read a popular book by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. In 1942, he wrote this book that outlines conversations between demons as they tempt believers. This is a fictitious Uh, story, but here's one demon talking to another demon. It says, it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And so, so quickly we can forget God's Word. The devil wants to keep truth out of our minds. He wants us to call into question our purpose and our foundation to our faith. So remember, when you hear that offer for power, that manipulating voice to turn to the true voice, the, tr- the voice that comes from Christ. Let's look at the third and the last temptation. Recognize the temptation of abandoning the mission. This is verses 8 through 11. The devil is pulling out all stops now. He's doing whatever he can. And we must remember the truth of God's word. So the devil leads Jesus to a high mountain for the purpose of showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. This isn't a tourist excursion. This is a devilish detour. And in verse 9, we see the heart of the evil one. He says, if I give you all these things, if I give these things to you, will you fall down and worship me? We don't need a Scooby-Doo reveal here to see who's hiding beneath the temptations. We don't have to pull the mask off. It's clear who this is. The evil one is doing evil things. But Austin Gentry points out, in these temptations, we can see very clearly how the enemy tempts us. Every temptation starts the same way. Satan puts question marks where God has put periods. So Jesus turns these questions and temptations into exclamation points. What does Jesus tell the devil? Let's have coffee and we can talk further about your offer. No. What does he say? Go away, Satan. Be gone. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then in verse 11, we read that the devil finally leaves And the angels came and began to serve him. So Christ is victorious, but it does seem that this battle took a toll on him. The angels are serving him. But Jesus is victorious over the devil in this supernatural scene. Some have pushed back at these temptations and wondered, could Jesus 
have actually sinned during these temptations. I remember when I was uh, working at the Office of Hearings and Appeals as a side, as a part-time job as I was going to seminary, and uh, I had this idea that I would start a Bible study uh, during the lunch hour, and I asked my coworkers, uh, I said, uh, if you could ask God any question and He would answer you with an audible voice, what would be the question that you would ask Him? Well, that led to so many questions I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> this was a Bible study that took many more weeks than I was anticipating. But I remember one lady there, Sabrina, she asked this question. She's like, as I look at Jesus being tempted, I, I don't think this is really fair. He's the Son of God. Could He really have sinned? This was her question. Well, it depends on what you mean by the word could. Jesus is Himself the perfect union of God and man. He has both a divine and human nature. So God is, of course, morally incapable of sinning. But Jesus, in His human nature, really and truly desire things humanity's been designed to desire. So, could He have sinned? Is His nature one that's capable of being both light and darkness? No. Could He have sinned? Was He physically capable of eating bread, of throwing Himself from a temple? Or of bowing his knee and saying the word Satan is Lord? Yes, of course, he could have. But Satan is not Lord. Jesus is. Jesus is Lord and Jesus does not hold back here in verse 10. His authority is on display. He doesn't cave in to the devil's desires. And we see what we are called to do and is to worship God. The heart of the matter here, the last temptation, centers around worship. Worship is not just a topic for us to consider. While everyone worships something, the people who have been saved by grace, who are united to Christ in faith, worship the true God. Biblical worship is our response as God's people to who He is. Our affections and our attention are radically centered on the triune God who has made us and who has eternally changed us. So as you look at this passage, you might think, well, that's nice. I know I'm called to worship, but sometimes I feel that I'm alone and sometimes I fail. Well, let me remind you that you're not alone. Let's look together. Let's look together. There's been a lot of scripture this morning, but let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians 10, I, I contemplated reading the first 30 verses, but I'm not going to. People were laughing too early. How do you know I didn't decide upon that? <laughs> but in 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 13. I know you know this verse, but it's so good to be reminded. No temptation has come upon you except which is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. 
But with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. So where does our strength come from? From God, who's faithful, who's with us, who sent Christ to die for us so that we might live and reign and obey because of Christ. And so our example is Christ. So as you are overwhelmed or as you fail or as you feel weak, remember, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. But it's always interesting, I call this like a um, coffee mug verse, a bumper sticker verse. We know this verse. It's always interesting to read the verse right before or the verse right after it. Look at verse 14. Like, whoa, we took a sudden hard right here. It's not a hard right. He says, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. So he reminds them, worship God, just like Jesus reminds us to worship the Lord God. The Corinthians needed this reminder. We need this reminder today to worship God. Jesus is fixed on his mission. The devil wants to sidetrack him, but he will not be distracted. Jesus obeys his father here. He continues on the mission even though he's trying to be distracted. He's just trying to be distracted because the devil wants him to follow him because if he gets Jesus to worship him, he knows that if Christ fails here, it not only has an impact on him, but on you and me. You and I have hope because of Jesus Christ. He is not only our example, but he is our victory. First Peter reminds us, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So because of Jesus, because of Christ, you and I can be forgiven. Because of Christ, you and I can truly obey. So we see God sends Christ not only to obey, but to die so that we might live. Hebrews 4 reminds us that we have one who was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. And so we draw near because of Christ. We see God's grace in our time of need. We need God's grace to see sin. We need God's grace to run from sin. And we are truly able to obey I was reminded in our community group this past week of the song by Shane and Shane that we are fighting a battle that Christ has already won. We are fighting a battle that Christ has already won. So how do we fight? We fight in his steps, but not in our strength. So we need God's grace to run from sin. And we need God's grace to rejoice over sin. We rejoice in Christ. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 reminds us of this. So as we look at these temptations, we can see where we fail in temptation, where we look to feed our flesh, pursue power, and worship something other than God. But what does Paul tell the Corinthians? Flee from that. What does Jesus tell the devil? Worship God. So look to Christ this morning. He is the spotless son, completely perfect and fully qualified. He triumphed when Adam and Eve did not. He triumphed when we fail. So you can run to Jesus Christ this morning. 
because you can be restored and redeemed in Christ. Let me encourage you this morning, if you have not trusted in Christ, if you've trusted in something else, in your own flesh, in your own works, in someone else, that you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven in Christ. I would love to talk with you after this morning's service. I would love to pray with you. I would love to encourage you to follow Christ this morning because He is our victory. He is the one that we need to redeem us and to restore us. And so let us look to Christ this morning, the one who overcame temptation, the one who's victorious, and the one that we rest in. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. Lord, we look to Christ as the perfect, spotless one, the one who covers our sins. And Lord, help us to trust him when the temptations are great, when we are overwhelmed, when we hear the manipulating, mocking voice to follow him instead of Christ. Lord, would you remind us where our hope lies. Lord, we thank you that we are not alone. We thank you that God is faithful. We thank you that we are led by the Spirit. We thank you that we have Christ. So we fight in a battle that's already won. So Lord, give us hope this morning. Help us to sing triumphantly, to sing with victory in our hearts. And Lord, we praise you for who you are and what you have done. We rejoice in Christ our Savior the one who defeated the devil, the one who defeated death, and the one who reigns forevermore. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Well, let's respond to the word of God celebrating what has already been won, and let's exalt Jesus.